use it like like a, a sketch pad. Okay, Chris, you've achieved category dominance as I suspected. I'm muting my microphone. I don't know how to feel about the uh, the upvoted question. Is directed at Chris. <laughs> oh no! Here we go. I got to get my buzzer ready. <laughs> do we do we have time for this? Back in. Can you set up a seven second delay, please? Uh, now to the question. That's pretty good. That is so annoying. Guess who's back? Tell. I'm so Are glad I don't able to have a soundboard. Yeah. For for the record, in this last three and a half minutes, I'm a little upset. It's it was only seven upvotes. Is there is there? Well, something you know, like, go to ten before we start the show. Well, no, because it's locked once it goes on deck. Oh, there's still. Hold on, I'll move it off the deck here. Got a little leakage from somewhere. Is that me? Oh, I'm hearing me again. What is going on here? Is that it? No. I'm hearing me double. Oh, dear. It's gone now. It was uh, sort of like a TV in the room next door. No, it was the no, it's me. Games, I think. I'm not sure what a four show Mac is. I got to work on that one. Sometimes uh, you use four shows. As opposed to this is my surfboard or this is my, you know, personal email machine. Everyone have a great show.
Good morning, all, and welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do on officehours.global. Our first hour, a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer audience-submitted questions. Our second hour, typically a deeper dive into a topic. Today, we are going to be talking about the right camera for the job. And uh, camera is a broad category for us here. Opinions on which modern cameras excel at which tasks, when it's probably a good idea to go with your uh high-end cell phone camera and when you need to upgrade and move into something all the way up to serious production cameras. So that's our second hour topic right now. We're going to dive into our questions. Mitch, what have we got today? Thank you, Bill. Uh, we're going to have to thank TJ Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota for this question. What is Chris Fenwick's opinion on all this AI stuff? <laughs> so we had a little discussion about this earlier today. Chris, uh, well, it's John Preto has weighed in first. So you have to listen to John Preto first. John, go for it. Please uh, mute Chris's channel right now. Don't let him talk. Wait a second. Your your level is really low unless that's me. Is it okay? Okay. I had original sound. Should be back in the ballpark now. Uh, please don't let Chris talk on this subject. He is a, he is a neo-Luddite. <laughs> well, at least knew about being a Luddite. Anyway, Chris, the floor is yours for better or worse. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, John. Um, so... I mean, first of all, TJ, you have exposed yourself as being completely uh, malleable and and influenceable. <laughs> Sorry, there's something very funny on the TV in the next room, uh, and um, and I didn't really want to do this, but I will say that I I really am like sociologically concerned about the um, the rabid uh fascination with all this ai stuff again i mean i've I, i've said this before i've been watching this for nearly 40 years uh some of the one of the very first professional jobs well, that i actually got paid for <laughs> was a job for hewlett packard back in the mid 80s where for three weeks we there was a an ai expert at the time and they wanted to document all of his thoughts in case something ever happened to him. And for three weeks, eight hours a day, he lectured about artificial intelligence. Um, so I've been following it for a long time, but I do think that there, that what we, if we, if we lift up this rise of artificial intelligence, we need to, at the very least, simultaneously and concurrently, um, herald the input of the humans. Um, and I think that, I think that kind of like calculators made it so kids couldn't do, you know, math. Um, but, but then we taught kids how to use their calculators better. And, and of course the end result is we are better at math or, or we can, we can get more out of math. There was something that was said the other day about learning how to input better into the, the chat GPT, LMNOP, whatever all this stuff is. I can't even keep track of it all. I think that there is a, we could easily do a whole second hour just on uh, that, like how to get better at that. But even more um, rudimentary, uh, I've always thought that learning like good Google foo, like, how how do you find things? There's so many little tricks, and I've had people send me PDFs. So like, here's all the different little things, little tricks in Google that you can do. 
Um, I also heard a very interesting conversation just last night about how um, I think there's a possibility that things like chat GPT for many rudimentary Google tasks could, with the right front end, could completely destroy Google's business model. You know, if I say, you know, what's the best, uh, you know, barbecue in Oakland, California, I'm going to, I'm going to feel like a human is telling me some good places as opposed to you do that in Google and you're going to have two pages of ads, first of all, and then maybe I'll find somebody's blog who's genuinely telling me about something that's great. Um, I just, but, but I do think that <clears throat> I honestly think that we need to be a little careful. Uh, it just, I, and yes, Neil Luddite, sure, John, if that's what you want to say. Fair enough. Let's go around the panel a little yeah, bit and I see should, what everybody else thinks. Alex, dive in. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I've been watching it for about 30 years. I worked at an AI, a life company uh, instead of not an AI company and truly was. It was a generating stuff from nothing. <laughs> like it was just without any information being pumped into it. Um, and uh, and we would just cycle it up. And so I've been kind of paying attention to it. And it was terrifying when I first saw it. I was like, oh, this is, we're over. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like this is amazing. Um, and uh, again, about 30 years ago. Um, the, the, I think that the thing that I find interesting about it is the ability to allow humans to be what we're what I, th I think we're seeing is an unleashing of creativity from the humans that are inputting the stuff if I can think of anything and I can get something back out again you know and there's many people who have many ideas that aren't gonna that, don't, that didn't put the time in you know, to paint or to draw or to to you know learn how to do those things and you know we um, a lot of times at first, but it, it, it just creates a new level of creativity. Rap was built on the fact that a lot of, a lot of folks had things to say and they didn't have the, the, the mechanical ability to play an instrument, you know? And so they, you know, they, they set, they got sequencers out and they've got resampling and they built up things and they, you know, and they did something very creative with something, you know, without the traditional skills that were required to do that. And so I think that one of the things that's really interesting is the ability to, um, uh, for you to think about something and then have it happen. And I think shortening that distance for everyone is pretty empowering. Um, I don't think that, I think that it actually gives humans more things to do and more opportunities to build things and, and create things. Um, I think that folks who are doing something mechanical that are just good at mechanical something or other probably will have a more difficult time you know, about, you know, with, with what, if, if that's how they make money. <laughs> so, so I do think that, uh, our schools are not building people that are ready. <laughs> They're not building workers for this, for this future. Um, you know, that, you know, packing, being able to memorize everything that a school wants you to learn and everything else is just wasting your time at this point, because you don't need to know that, you know, like you, you, you can, you can acquire it as you go, you know, and, and, and pull it in. You need to know very, I'm not saying you don't need to know anything and I'm not saying that all school is not useful, but, but, but the amount of memorization about things that just aren't ever going to affect your life is, is, uh, is really problematic because kids really need to learn how to be very creative and they need to learn how to build things and, and work with other people because the, it's the only thing that's going to matter, <laughs> like, you know, down the road is being able to, you know, have that. And I think that, um, so I think that there is a, a real problem that is being created, as Chris said, that is, we're not, we don't have the infrastructure to manage what's going to happen next. The opportunity is massive for humans um, of being able to create and design things that, that, that you're not caught up in all the little bits and pieces of how to do that 
it just does that thing for you. Um, but um, what we've seen over and over again with MidJourney, with ChatGPT, is that it's almost correct. It'll probably almost correct for a long time and not having the capacity to know whether it's correct or not problematic <laughs> you know, like so if, if we if we don't you know how do you have advanced programmers when all the base programming is done by a computer you know like you can't you know you'll age everybody out eventually and then no one will know how to do anything you know and mitch, i think that that's the that's the challenge mitch what do you think uh the first thing i did was i hid my magic eight ball which has been giving me great answers for the last uh, 50 years and the other is the deep dive I've done into the research for what AI is capable of doing. I think people are most concerned that AI will somehow affect us individually. And uh, for that reason, I'm going to watch very carefully to see what happens to Chris, because Chris seems to have a negative opinion. And if AI was to lash out, I think Chris would be its first target. <laughs> Signs point to Jesse Kessler next. Uh, Chris, there's one thing I really want to agree with you on, and that is uh, the human component. And this is an oversimplification, but here's how I think of it. There are uh, five tiers to any AI operation. There's the human tier where you build the algorithm. There's the human tier where you input the query. Uh, the third tier is where the algorithm actually executes. Uh, that's based on the fourth tier, which is the data uh, kind of scraped from millions of people around the globe. And then there's the fifth tier, which is uh, feedback on the usefulness of that data. Uh, there's a lot of excitement around the third tier, which is the algorithm executing its operation. And there's a lot of value in a, a lot of perceived value in that first tier. I mean, financial value. Uh, what concerns me the most is the equity vacuum happening at that uh, fourth tier, the, the network of millions of people that are contributing to the actual value of these algorithms. Okay. Courtney Gooden. And what worries me is the seventh tier where the algorithm gets smarter than everybody and takes over. Uh, I think there are areas where application could be great. I think language translation, anyone who's ever tried to read the manual of something manufactured in another language and machine translated, uh, it mutilates the English language, which I understand is very difficult for anyone who doesn't speak natively the English language. But I've and I've noticed that Chat GPT is, seems to be almost perfect with its you know word tense and uh, verb tense and usage of the correct verb in the correct uh, place and the correct word in the correct place, even though words that uh, are spelled the same but used differently or spelled differently but used the same. Uh, so I think it can make great inroads in multi-language translation if that AI algorithm can be trained in different languages and to translate between them. And it's going to be making reading manuals a lot easier. Chris Fenwick. You know, Alex, you mentioned that we are at a, um, a point where we are not equipping children to live in the world that is in front of us. And all I could think about was that Sarah Connor knew what was coming and she spent John Connor's whole childhood equipping him for the future that was coming. And we are talking about robots and artificial intelligence. So I thought that was, yes, we need to equip our, our John Connors. Alex. I, I, that, that point hasn't, I haven't missed. <laughs> you know, so anyway, um, yeah. So, so, you know, the, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, the, I think that, the the um oh no I lost my my train of thought but but I, I guess I guess what I would say is that um one of the things that I was that I woke up thinking about was really that 
we ought, we have grown up being told that content is king. And as content creators, we need to be clear, content is not king. Community is king. Content is the honeypot that brings, that, you know, builds a community. When you go to see Metallica in a giant stadium, you're going to see Metallica with your community. Like that's, you know, that's what you did there. You think that it's Metallica, but they're, they're the epicenter that brings that community together. They're the, they're the, you, when you, you know, are listening to something and other people know about it, it's that community that, that is driving it. And what we're going to continue to see is content become less and less uh, valuable in itself. You know, it, it will only be, if you look at MidJourney, the, the content is not what has six and a half million people on MidJourney, on the MidJourney Discord. It's the community. It's everyone doing the content together. And I think that what we're going to see is more and more people doing this content together, which is hopefully we're part of too. The only thing I wanted to add to the discussion is my friend Phil Hodgetts decades ago tried to give me some sense of the difference between artificial intelligence, which a lot of this is called, and machine learning. They are two different disciplines. They are often confused for one another. So if you want to get ahead of this a little bit, maybe look up that definitional difference. Courtney, one last thought before we move on. Yeah, the thing with Alex's thought about community is the thing that worries me is we were already moving toward an artificial community, you know, because every time you go to ask a question, of uh, you know customer service, they connect you with the chat bot, which is an AI bot, and just so just think what happens when Jeff Bezos or somebody in the meta or uh, in the metaverse they just build communities of artificial beings and intelligences that you join a community and you come to find out that you know half of them are Stepford wives, they're artificial intelligent communities. So. Well, that's why you can't trust chat. <laughs> All right. I let this run over a bit because it's a current topic. Everybody is interested in it. Hope you found that all interesting, but we've got a lot of other questions here. In fact, a ton today. So we're going to move on. Next question. Jacob Goodnight from Indianapolis, Indiana wants to know, what are your recommendations for good quality home office chairs? I don't have budget for Herman Miller Aaron. We're going to start with Chris Fenwick here. Chris? You don't have budget yet. Uh, this is a good example of buy once, cry once. You spend most of you spend a huge amount of your life laying in your bed, buy a good mattress. You probably sit in your desk chair more than you lay in your bed. Get a good chair. John Preto. So I just looked on Facebook Marketplace and on um, Craigslist, and I'm seeing Aeron's out there in between three hundred to four hundred dollars. And I bought I bought my last batch used, and they were fantastic. And Courtney Gooden. I just one suggestion is stay away from anything saying that says bonded leather because it's not leather. It will flake off its canvas with little microscopic thin layer of animal cells of some sort, but it's not leather. TJ uh, Asher. Um, like John said, uh, check out the used market. You can get really good deals on used Aaron chairs. Aaron chairs are made with a, a tw come with a 12 year warranty from the factory. So they're made to be used hard for all day use. Mitch Hill. And uh, I know that you don't want to spend the money, but uh, what you're hearing over and over here, a used Aeron or something like it, here's the deal. You spend a lot of time in a chair and you're uh, affecting your quality of life because your back may go out using uh, incorrect posturing. You need something that uh, supports your, uh, your thighs and your feet can be flatly on the ground. Uh, and perhaps some lumbar support in the back. Um, these things all contribute to decrepitude as you get older. So please uh, consider it as a priority and switch it to something you need to spend the money on to get right. 
Harshid? I would suggest uh, if you're into steel case, they also offer a 12-year uh, warranty, as does with the Aeron. Um, the Amia is about uh, 800 bucks or 700 bucks, depending on what package you get. And then uh, the Leap is in the 1200, 1300 mark. But if you like the better back, the Leap's better. If you like the better seat cushion overall, uh, the Amia. And then as far as uh, the other brands, the Fern and Others may offer something similar, but at a more affordable rate. And uh, just look at the way that they offer pricing as far as uh, finance as well. I'm going to second that only because I've been 20 years in a steel case leap and it's still working strong here. Next question. For, oh, no, Mark Giuliani. Mark. The uh, Aerons are great chairs. We have about a dozen of them. They're 20 years old. Last year, we went through the office. Everybody checked off what parts they had that were worn out. We sent it into the rep from Herman Miller. They sent out the parts and a repair person. And for less than the cost of one chair, all those chairs were refurbished. And we ended up buying more Herman Millers. Fenwick. I'll also say I'm not a huge fan of the Aeron. I prefer the Herman Miller Mira. And Alex, uh, two years in, you still enjoying your chair? Yeah, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's great. TJ, finishes up. Uh, just on the Aeron chairs, they come in three sizes. So um, size C for tall people or larger people, size B for people that are uh, mid five foot range, and the A size is for quite short people. So uh, as you're buying, if you're looking used, look for the size specifically accordingly. Let's move to the next question. Dan Goldstein for White Plains, New York, asking, what OS are you running for any show, Max, on any quirks noticed with Ventura as of yet? Chris Fenwick. Uh, I'm using Ventura on everything, uh, by and large, no real problems. I will say that uh, there have been times uh, where Apple, in their infinite Apple-esque wisdom, have, you know, said, oh, we're going to streamline this. Uh, One example was uh, several years ago, they took the the Macintosh version of Keynote and they dumbed it down to make it have parity with the iO the the iPad version or the iOS version of Keynote, so that they could then from that point go on and and uh, develop in concert with each other. And when they did that, they actually took features away from the Mac version, which was kind of infuriating. There is a missing feature that I can't figure out in the where you customize the way you want the Mac to generate dates. And uh, we go into another time, but it's something I used all the time. And it's like, the Ventura doesn't actually have it. Jesse Kester. I'm running Ventura on an M1 Mac mini. And so far it's running very smoothly. The The two quirks that I noticed are when I installed Ventura, um the the computer will link to any other apple computer in the room and you can move your mouse across all your computers and that'll throw you off the first time it happens and the other thing it does is it can automatically connect with your uh, phone's camera to act as a webcam and it can do that wirelessly and that also caught me off guard at first mark giuliani so we use both platforms pcs and macs and it really depends what you're doing so if you're using zoom iso and you're familiar with that if you're using um Loopback, and you're familiar with that, you're, you're on a Mac platform. If you're using vMix, you're on a PC platform. So it depends what tools you want to use and what you're familiar with. Next question. Jonas Dottel from Stuttgart, Germany. Mr. Beast got Hans Zimmer to create a soundtrack for his latest video. Is this the start of a move from the film industry into YouTube videos? Jesse Kester. Uh, if you're talking specifically Hans Zimmer, I don't know, but... Um, 
I think you might be surprised how accessible your favorite composer is, unless your favorite composer is Danny Elfman, Hans Zimmer, or, um, oh, what's that fella's name who did Star Wars? Anyway, um, you can usually reach directly out to your your favorite uh, sub-A tier composer and uh, negotiate with them directly if you want to to have an original composition. Mitchell. I talked to uh, David Arnold on a fairly regular basis. I don't know why he talks to me, but he's the guy that did... Um, Oh, gosh, he did uh, Stargate SG-1, Star Trek, and a few other things. Um, it's very interesting to see this, and I, I hope it's not just the money. I think it's uh, possibly that Hans is considering this is a thing, and I need to be more involved in it, so let's extend my capabilities just beyond movies. Alex? I actually know some folks that have worked with Hans Zimmer, and he's just very aggressive about the future. <laughs> he's, he's always looking at, you know, you're talking about someone who really has been at the front edge of music you know, development for a very, very long time. And he pays attention to a lot of new trends. He's constantly wanting to experiment. He's constantly looking for something new. I think uh, I heard that he just kind of ran into Mr. Beast at some event and they started talking. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like somebody contacted somebody else. Um, and, uh, uh, and I think he's just, he's just always interested. He's, if, if he's got the time and he looks, looks like something cool, Mr. Beast is at an entirely different level of, of exposure, especially into a market that probably doesn't know who Hans Zimmer is, you know, like if you look at the, the cross section. So it's a really easy, probably a pretty easy decision for him specifically to make it. I, I don't think that every uh, composer would be that interested in that in that process, but he's specifically pretty interested in everything new. Chris Fenwick. Do you, Alex, do you think Mr. Beast could be more successful if he didn't have the name Mr. Beast? I don't know how he could be more successful. Oh, I got to I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously I'm joking about that, yeah. uh, but, but it's an, he's an, it's he's really a really interesting back. case study in picking a name, uh, 10 years ago when you were, you know, junior high or whatever, <laughs> right. just messing around on the computer and having it, uh, stick. So yeah, I, 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 too I bad he didn't pick a better, he didn't brand himself better. You know, who knows, uh, who knows what he could have done. I'm always careful to second guess him because, you know, he's done, he's done okay. <laughs> like I, whatever, whatever model he has, it's working. So, so, um, so I try to, try to not, not, not second guess it too much. John Preto. Just like Alex says, it's all about the community and Mr. Beast's community is bigger than anything uh, in Hollywood or TV or anywhere. And so of course they're going to go where the community is. And with that, the Garage Rocketeers would like the remotes to write our theme song. There, there you go. go. That there you exciting. go. Exceptional. Uh, Courtney, finish this up. Yeah, follow the money. You know, it's a lot of composers out there. Uh, you may not realize it, but compose jingles for major advertisers uh, anonymously uh, and have been doing it for years. So, you know, it's not a surprise that someone with the deep pockets of Mr. Beast would hire somebody like Hans Zimmer to write think, music for his... Uh, I think he hired him. Well, or Hans Zimmer volunteered because yeah. maybe he wants to explore a new market. Uh, and there's a lot of money there, as we've seen from Mr. Beast. All right, let's move on to the next question. Liberty White from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. What's a good app or service that will restrict a child's activity after a certain period of time on an iPad? TJ Asher. Built into the iPad itself is a setting called Screen Time that you can set up and um, as a parent, you can manage your child's iPad and give uh, specific hours that it's available, websites that are available. So I would explore that. It's built right into the operating system. Excellent answer. Let's move on to the next question. 
Tony Mobley from Noonan, Georgia, asking, what new phone did Chris Fenwick get? Ooh, inquiring minds want to know. Chris hasn't raised his the hand. Thing. Chris, do you want to weigh I in? Got, I got the thing, the 14. Oh, the 14 Pro 14. Max Extra, you know, Ultra Edition, whatever they call it. You got the biggest, the, the right hand column. Nice. All right. Well, there's your answer, Tony. Let's go to the next question. Next question in from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. So I'm turning in circles. Where is it in Google Sheets to notify everyone the sheet is shared to about updates? I'm sure I've uh, set that up before, but can't this morning think of how. Alex. So I, I'm not certain about this, but I think that you have to you have to invite them through the interface. So if you if you share a link to a Google Doc, it won't it won't let anybody who has that link it won't automatically update them. But if you share the doc through the interface and put the emails in there, it should um, update them on on updates. And there might be a, a checkbox there somewhere, but it's in that sharing um, process of putting their email into it, not sharing them a link, but actually putting their emails into the share um, structures that. Nice. Right, so Chris, try it out. Ping back and let us know if everything worked out smoothly for you. Next question. Michael Flotron from Portland, Oregon, asking, I've recently discovered the no-code movement and used a tool called Bubble to create various interactive overlays for use in live streams. Has the panel used any no-code tools in your productions? Courtney. I'm not uh, familiar with Bubble, uh, but for years uh, in the industry that I'm in where I had to create background graphics, you know, what what we call the eye candy that goes on all the screens in the background with little animated things and high tech situations. I wrote code myself to create an interactive program with a lot of different tools built into it to uh, do, like you say, create uh, unique uh, looking overlays and, and active parts of programs. So I could go on the set and quickly generate 50 or 60 screens in one sitting uh, that look different to go into uh, the background of a, of a movie or a television show. And so it, it's, you know, it's a great method of, a, of operating because you can quickly make changes without having to leave, leave the program itself. Once I wrote the program, to write code to change its appearance, its look, or its function. Alex? I mean, low code or no code have been around for a long time. Visual Basic, uh, you know, is, is, is a good one. Quartz Composer, Nuke, um, Shake, all of these things are there. So our show runs on what we would typically call low code, which is um, uh, Isadora and Universe are generally lots of nodes that you're putting together, um, that, that the patches that we put together there are, there is some code injected, so it's not no code, but it's low code. So building those logic chains is something that, that is used a lot, you know, for those types of things. Conduit, which is something that my company sold for a long time, was a was a low code, um, nearly no code, you know, live compositor. So any of those types of things are there. I think there's a. I think we're going to see more and more of that. I I still feel like at some point Apple will release something between shortcuts and 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 Swift Playgrounds, which is just a nodal uh, development uh, environment. Um, but we'll we'll see. John Credo. The one I use is called Retool, and it, it allows me to connect into my Postgres SQL databases and build front end for those and then feed that data anywhere I want. It works fantastic. Doesn't everything eventually have to translate down to assembly to, to get the actual it, the processor it, to do stuff? 
It does, but but that's what you're doing. You're you're basically. Yeah, I mean, when right. you're writing code, you're compiling. When you compile it, you're compiling it into what the processor needs anyway. So you're even if you're writing um, in Swift or or in C plus plus or or C sharp or or whatever, it still has to be compiled and talk back to the back to the hardware. So you're just doing the same thing. You're setting up a bunch of decisions, and for someone who can write the code, it's faster for them to write the code, <laughs> oftentimes. Yeah. Um, but but when you look at those things, you know, it's essentially very similar to using a library. You know, each one of those things is, is now doing something for you. You didn't have to rewrite that snippet of code that does this this certain thing into your code. You just put it in there. And so so I think you can build very, very complex um, environments with it. We, we built very, I mean, I know, I know when, we, when we did Visual Basic work in the 90s, we built super complex event um, systems, you know, just with Visual Basic. Yeah, it's fascinating. I remember seeing some of the videos from WWDC and, and the code session, they're actually writing assembly. And it's an amazing thing. I have a tremendous amount of respect for the people who can work down at that level. Let's move on to the next question. And it's from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Chris asks, so Starlink is letting some customers upgrade their residential service to the new ProDish with only a $1,900 fee until the end of the year for the same monthly price worth it? Alex? I'm super tempted now. <laughs> like, like when I looked at it, I was like upgrading and then having to pay some I incredible expensive thing. I was just kind of like, oh, I don't want to do that. And again, mine, I, I understand that the business one is a little bit more, a little less sensitive to seeing all of the sky, um, I believe. And so um, anyway, so I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm more tempted at, at if it keeps the same price. Mark Giuliani. So we have the business one for the radio station as a backup. <clears throat> We're still testing it. The speeds are about the same from what I've talked to on other people on oh, office hours. Huh. So, I mean, we're about 200 down and about mm -hmm. 17 or 18 up. Interesting. So I'm not sure. It, it is a different receiver. And maybe it can, it's, it's less reliable in having as many or less I, needed on having so many. I have to admit, I'm more satellites. interested in, I'm really trying to figure out whether I should get it and just give it to my parents. My parents get one meg up and one meg down where they live. And I was like, you just put that up on the house and then and then they can finally have internet. Well, the other interesting thing is your monthly fee goes up, I believe. So well, that's the what business I, that's one's what, $500. And then if you want to wrote, if you want to be able to move the business one, it's another $500 on top of that. I, but yeah, I think that I think that what Chris was referring to here is that there's a, the same monthly price. So they're, they're having some kind of, maybe, they may not have, be having as much of an uptick on their business ah, as okay. they as they thought they would. <laughs> because, because, and I think they may be trying to fill that out a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, at a 2019 U2 concert at Tokyo's Satama Super Arena, the onstage backline was powered by four Toyota Mirai hydrogen-powered cars. How would you adapt the power to a touring system's needs? Uh, Cordy Gooden. Well, the difficulty is transport of hard hydrogen. I did uh, one of my tech briefs magazine that I was looking for. I couldn't find it right offhand. Is somebody's building a giant blimp. Uh, dirigible, actually, a dirigible that uses carbon fiber instead of steel and stuff. That, and it takes compressed hydrogen and uh, can transport it from one place to another. And this company that is building these large, going to build these large dirigibles for transporting hydrogen, uh, seem to think that that's going to be the uh, method of powering the future with fuel cells, which is what the Mirai uses uh, to convert the hydrogen directly into electricity. Uh, which powers its electric motors. Uh, the only byproduct is uh, water vapor or water. But uh, the problem is transporting the hydrogen safely from one location to another. And I don't think dirigibles, I think they had a problem with those back in the wild, didn't they? 
Yeah, over the holidays here, I uh, met up with Guy Cochran and Carmi Weinsvig, who's part of our office hours kind of friend family. And Carmi has one of the new hydrogen-powered Hyundais, and we got to drive around it. And it's a really fascinating technology. Uh, it was an easy-to-ride-in car. It's a little SUV kind of thing. Actually, not really little, kind of midsize. But um it reminded me of the first time I was in an electric car in terms of the quietness. Uh, the gas cap reveals a different kind of system. So, yes, you're you're pumping in uh, hydrogen through a standard, well, not a standard, but a gas pump type arrangement. So it's different than charging in your garage. And uh, it was a it was a really nice experience driving around, very quiet. And the fact that we were putting out nothing but water vapor as the... Uh, emissions was really useful. So we'll see how it goes. It's going to be a technology coming along. Let's go to the next question. Bobby Rafferty in Central Florida asks, uh, can 3D be used in office productivity applications? I want to use it for presentations and different angles of the object. Alex. I think this is coming soon. <laughs> so it doesn't work just yet. Um, but I do think that it, we are at the precipice of having support of USDZ in the Apple OA system. And I think that that will lead to USDZ support in the PowerPoint and, you know, office stuff because they'll have to. I think that you can't, as soon as people see what's possible with being able to add 3D objects to do exactly what you're talking about, they're not going to be able to go back. And, and I think that Microsoft will have to solve the problem by at least making it, supporting it on the Mac side. They hate doing something on one platform and not the other, but unless they support it. And I think that they've got to be paying attention to that. And I think you'll see it roll out everywhere over time because um, many of us have, have wanted to do this for a very long time is be able to take objects. I have a clip art of, let's say I have a cup. I want to set the cup. I want you to see it like this. I want you to see it like this, over like this, whatever I want. It's not that I want to animate it in the, maybe I do, but it's not really about the animation. It's about getting the multiple angles. Now, the way I do this right now is motion, Apple's motion will um, open USDZ models and so will preview. So if you can get a USDZ model, you can actually, I, I started using motion for it and then I realized that preview would do it as well. So in preview, you can actually um, rotate it around. You know, you can open up a USDZ file, you can rotate it to where, the, where, the way you want it and then just screen capture it and it'll just be now an image um, that's there. The, the advantage of motion is that you can export it with a uh, alpha channel. So you can export that out, that object out with an alpha channel transparency, everything else that you want. Um, so so that you, if you find the models, you can now already rotate them around, put them where you want them in either motion or preview, depending on how you want to do it, and then drop them into your any, any package because they're 2D by the time they come out of that. So that's how you do it right now. I don't think, I think by the time we get to end of 2023, uh, we'll be dropping objects at least into the Apple apps and just rotating them to where we want them. And when that happens, I'm just going to keep saying it's a big business. <laughs> There's a lot of there is a uh, building those app, building all the all that clip art is not going to be grabbing the old clip art and doing it because uh, those have old business models. They're they're built not in a kind of a shiny presentation sort of way. They're built for 3D artists. And so there's an entire rebuilding uh, of disruption that's ready to happen. And I think it's going to be pretty, pretty exciting. And I think that many, many companies will want to build all their models and make them available so that people can show them off in presentations, even their own salespeople, which is what Chris, Chris Ritchie's found. Courtney. What if you're in the Windows world, you know, you've been able to do this for several years now and it built, it's been built into Windows 10. They kind of deprecated it, Windows 11. I'm not sure why. Here's the 3D viewer that comes in every version of Windows right now. Uh, 
you know, it's uh, animated. You can do animations. You can rotate it around. It's the 3D viewer. There's a 3D paint. Uh, so they've incorporated it into the Windows world uh, for a while. So you can, uh, and there's a, a plethora of 3D models you can choose from. So if you're in the Windows world, look at, just type 3D viewer into your search and you'll find this application. Mitchell. Yeah, if you're selling something or, you know, you want to create a hero shot of it, nothing looks better in 2D than 3D. And 3D provides that uh, perspective of the lighting, the ambient occlusion. It looks realistic. And uh, that's a great way to sell something, particularly if it's a product or it's something on a box where you can mock up a box and it's got all that nice uh, uh, lighting and effects on it. It's just a great way to have it just pop out and make sense. Okay, and uh, next question. Next question for Dan Goldstein in White Plains, New York. Using a new iPad mini as an audio playback device, what audio interfaces would you recommend since the audio jack has been removed from all the latest gen iPads? Alex. Yeah, just about any any USB interface that you can that you can buy that has the XLR output will work. So, you know, it, it will uh, you, you're going to go USB, you know, C or whatever out to uh, your interface, and it will then be able to generate it. The one that I have used for the last decade is the is the USB Pre Two from uh, Sound Devices. It's very expensive, and it's the best. <laughs> like for for doing output, for doing audio output from that. But there are many less expensive versions of that. Um, that any but any USB interface that is um, capable of it, preferably one that is bus powered. So what you're looking for the U, the USB um, the the USB Pre Two is is bus powered, and so um, that's something to look at. The other thing you want to look at is having a breakout to it so that you can put power back into it. So you want to be able to put power into the iPad and then and then have it be able to send back out of the back out of there. Next question. Brett Below from Appleton, Wisconsin, asking, in a recent Office Hours episode, Alex advocated for the end of hybrid events as we know them. Is there a better term than virtual event and any advice for convincing clients to change their mindset on hybrid events versus all digital Zoom? Alex. Yeah, I'm, I'm really leaning towards just calling them digital events and digital first events. Digital first events are, it's a physical event, much like a hybrid, except that the, that the uh, speaker and the audience are never the speakers in the audience are never in the same room. You know, dur during that time when they're speaking, because it allows you to scale the event. The, the event scales when the speaker isn't looking at people; they're looking at screens. Um, that means that they're able to you know see many many different physical locations or many many uh, individuals and so on and so forth. So that's a digital event or digital first event. A digital event is just we don't have any <laughs> we don't have any any center. Uh, it's just people coming in from individual locations. Um, I think hybrid is starting to prove itself out. I don't know how much argument I have to do. Um, it'll probably be dead. As I, as I predicted about a year ago, it'll be dead within the next two years, um, you know, because it is, uh, it's very cumbersome to do the event. And what uh, I've been talking to a lot of organizers and the problem they're having is, is that they're, they have a much lower attendance than what they expected. Not the really, really big events, but a lot of the smaller ones, people are saying they want to come back to physical events and then not coming, <laughs> like they're not showing up. Um, and so the, the issue is people are telling them that, they're planning for it, and then people don't show up. And on the other side of that, people watching the, those hybrid events that are poorly done and very difficult to do well, um, they're not, they're slowly not coming either. And so they're literally burning up their entire audience in the atmosphere, you know, and, and I think that they're, 
it's starting to sink in that that this isn't going to work, <laughs> you know. But it, it hasn't completely sunk in yet. But they're they're hanging on with their little nails. But but it's not gonna it's not gonna turn. It's never going to work. I I've been given almost all versions of budgets and and a decade to work on this, and I thought that it would work. So my 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 jadedness doesn't come from a theory. <laughs> like it comes from doing hundreds and hundreds of these events and just realizing that it was a, uh, it was a soul sucking experience on the other side and it's never going to get any better. So uh, next question, Peter Rosado from Las Vegas, Nevada in the ask uh, for the paid mid journey users. Have you prepaid the year or you're going month to month to see how it pans out? John Preto. So I just bought the the basic plan and I'm on my managed subscription page and it's showing me my payments and and it just says it says approximately 200 generations a month and I've got 3 hours and 11 minutes of fast time and then I could buy more fast hours for 5 hours of fast time is 20 additional 1 hour $4 and so I'll let you know how it turns out but I I really enjoy it I'm using it a lot Alex what's your experience I started month to month because it was like, oh, I, I don't know how much I'm going to use it. I don't know if I really, I don't know if I'm going to get bored. Uh, and then uh, last week I, I just bought the yearly subscription because it's, you save a lot of money. So I got the pro version um, because I don't want to show my, so you have the basic and then you have the standard and with the standard is 30 bucks a month. And then for 20 bucks a month, you can have it be private. Um, and then uh, for $60 a month, you can have it be, um, you can get the pro version, which you get twice as much server time um but and only for only ten dollars more essentially if you if you want it to be private because it's private automatically and then if you say i want to do it for a year it's back to 48 dollars a month <laughs> and so i went ahead and bought the whole thing because I, I was like this is incredible like it's just an incredible uh thing to, to, to play with and it's just so much fun to be talking to people and well you know it's, a, it's just a fun conversation especially when you have it and someone goes oh what, what what would this look like and you can send them back an image immediately it's it's uh it's good it's a lot of fun. So I would, I would just go ahead and bite down at this point. It's, it's, I don't see anything catching up with it in the next year. So it's from a visual uh, synthesis perspective. John Preto, you have a last comment? I, yeah, I've had a, I've be, during the holidays, I've got a lot of friends here from high school and I've been creating love children and it's a huge hit sitting around <laughs> drinking glasses of wine. It, I got to tell you, there is very few things more fun than sitting around, uh, sitting around uh, a, a, a bunch of beers and, and, and opening up mid-journey. We did that at a Christmas party with a bunch of XILMers. That's where all those Chewbacca's and Princess Leia's and Millennium Falcons came from was that everyone had all these ideas and they started, and people just start throwing them in and you're just churning them out and everyone, you know, there's, it's a, there's going to be a lot of mid-journey parties in 2023. And next question. From Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia, Tony asks, I got a MacBook Pro for Christmas. How should I use it with my current setup? An M1, a Mac Mini, uh, A10 Mini Pro, PR40, ICANN 12-inch teleprompter, Stream Deck 32 button, and two iPads. Alex. Yeah, I would I would recommend um, using it as a support, something as a support to that that system. I wouldn't tie it into the system. The, you know, the, the laptops are a little bit less, a little bit more cumbersome to tie into the system where you already have Mac minis. Um, it's why I don't really use laptops that much anymore. But but the um, but I'd rather, you know, I have a stack of Mac minis that I keep on adding to add more services to what I'm doing. But I don't you know, I think I would use the laptop to plan things and work on things. And if you want to do an event somewhere remotely, um, the laptop, of course, is a lot easier. Next question. From Ari Block in Tel Aviv, Israel. With AI being all the rage at the moment, when might we see AI-driven productions? What parts will it take over? Thoughts? 
Courtney's going to start us off here. Courtney? Uh, script doctor. Because I noticed one thing in playing with chat GPT, it, it has a very keen knowledge of story structure. And you just tell it, you just give it a simple prompt like, uh, you know, write me a story about a little dog named Rags. Uh, and it that's all you give it. And it'll create a story with a, a beginning and a conflict and it brings in a conflicting character. And then, then there's a, another character that comes in that resolves the conflict and it always ends up with a happy ending. So it knows that story structure. So script doctor, you know, if you, if you could feed it a script and it could punch it up, you know, make it funnier, make it, you know, add more conflict, make it more exciting. You know, I think uh, that those kind of writers' tools are probably going to be a, a, an early adaptation of, of this technology. Uh, Jesse Kessler, I feel like takeover is a, a not really the the best way to think about what AI is doing and will do. I think um, like ten percent of what it will do is replace is is make jobs obsolete. But the 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 majority of what it does, the ninety percent, I think, is um, expedite productions, and um, oh, what was the other one? I had another thought. Um, oh, uh, give people access to tools and that that they never would have had access to otherwise, um, and and in, in that larger chunk, that ninety percent chunk, uh, it, we're going to see it very soon, and uh, it's it's going to expedite productions and make make workflow so much easier for so many people. Alex, when you actually look at a lot of the productions, high end productions, it's going to be hard to replace the humans anytime soon, just because it's they're pretty complex, <laughs> you know, the, and and there's a lot of interaction. Um, but I think that if you look at the show that we're doing right now, we're already looking at how do we make have have the the systems do more and more of the figuring out to do the basic stuff, so that we can have a limited staff continue to work on the more creative things. And so I think that you're going to see that more and more of how do we. We look at what we're doing over and over again and how do we have a machine do that so that we can look at what's next and how do we make it better and how do we make it bigger and we can continue to focus and people can have more and more professional level shows um, with, you know, and have the, the, the staff that you have be able to, you know, amplify their, their actions. And uh, Mitchell. Yeah, pretty much on the front end, I could see it being contributing in the, at least in the beginning to the creative part of it and maybe to management but the skills uh, that are involved in, in shooting a movie, everything from the grip to the best boy or best AI, um, that's a tough thing to replace because that's going to create uh, some kind of a robotic uh, necessity. So um, I don't think it's going to be impinging on that unless it starts being a critic first. And now we got a problem. All right, let's move on to the next question. Next question from John Fultz in Ceilings Grove, Pennsylvania. Uh, John asked, a little confusion using MidJourney. One, which thread should you put request in? And two, how do you locate your request after so much traffic goes by before you see results? TJ is going to help us. TJ? If you're signed up for just the trial, <clears throat> excuse me, the trial account, um, you'll get one or two or three different uh, newbie uh, channels to and just pick any one of them. Um, what I would recommend doing is going over, even if you have a trial account, go over to midjourney.com link your account to Discord. You sign up there and it's a, um, you can link it to Discord. And then anything you do in the MidJourney Discord, you will see over on midjourney.com under your own um, account. Okay, great. Alex? Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's what TJ said. Okay, <laughs> next question. 
Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana, asking, Everyone seems to be coming out with multi-destination support. Ecamm, Beta, Yolocast, to name just a couple. Do any of these services allow for good horizontal and vertical streams from the same source? Or is that too big a lift from anything so far? Alex? you can do that in an encoder and you can do it, you could also do it and there's places, the ways to do it in the cloud with vMix and so on and so forth. I don't recommend doing it. Um, basically what you're doing is getting a, uh, a kind of a dumbed down version for both of those platforms because all the, the vertical can do, and I've done this, all the vertical can do is center cut. <laughs> so you're going to center cut it, which means you're going to do this weird framing for the wide cut and the center cut or the center cut isn't really going to work. It's there's it, What hasn't happened is something that's smart that's going to follow and do a pan and scan live or something like that. Um, so, so inside of that, I also generally, even though we're going to do it for research, I generally don't for main events generally recommend against multicasting. Um, and the reason for that is that you're, you're fragmenting your audience out, you know, and, and so that's the, um, or if I multicast and this is something that we'll probably do on ours is you want to use the multicast to pull people back to one. <laughs> so like we will be talking about Mukana and or our office hours at, at every and everything that we put out on every platform because what we want to do is slowly unify that audience. Um, what you don't want to do is leave that audience fully served in every in every platform um, because you want to get them to one place that and uh, to to make sure that they're able to interact with each other. Next question. Andre Dole in Berlin asked, I stumbled over this quite cheap speed editor from Tut Turbo Tech for DaVinci and others. Thoughts? Alex, this audience is really expensive for me. That's all I got to say. So ask me that again next, end of next week. <laughs> Maybe early. Is this a lot after. of money? No, wow. It's not. It's not. Yeah, well. It's 130 bucks. It's, uh, I'm a fiend for analog controllers. So, um, and I, this was when it was announced that I, I, what, what Andre reminded me of when it was announced, it wasn't shipping. And I, uh, so I didn't buy it, but no, now it's shipping. So, so anyway, so, so, uh, I'll, I'll add it to the, my collection of, of, uh, hardware interfaces. So we'll, we'll, we'll check it out. It, it looks pretty interesting. This is a, a, you know, an analog interface with a lot of little buttons that you can pre-program into a lot of, um, other services. Courtney, you have a comment? Yeah, it's, it looks like somebody's designed something. A lot of people use game controllers to interface with technical equipment. You know, this is what it looks like. It looks kind of like a game controller with a joystick and a, a round pad. And and I think it uses the regular HID uh, controls for mouse controls. In other words, mouse and joystick controls to interface to any software that supports a mouse or joystick. So it should be universally adaptable to almost any program. Be interesting to see how well it, you as, as with any new control device you have to break yourself into it learn it and become good at it but uh and then you got to take it with you wherever you go next question called terry wallace in austin texas asking iphone 14 pro max versus samsung galaxy s22 ultra which phone wins in these categories design display camera and overall we typically don't talk religion here but alex what's your thought iphone 14 pro max there you go. <laughs> I will say that that your in your investment in the infrastructure and particularly your knowledge of the infrastructure of how the Apple ecosystem works versus how the Samsung and or Galaxy ecosystem works will have a lot to do with what you're going to be initially yeah. comfortable with. You can learn them both and they're both fabulous platforms. But those of us who are on iPhones kind of don't want to get away from that. And I would imagine it's the same on the other side. Let's go on to the next question. David Brady from New York, New York. 
asking 2023 objective is to get back up to speed with my analog video synth. There's a practice called vector synthesis that requires a DC coupled audio interface with a minimum three output channels, five recommended. Any suggestions? Alex, my only suggestion is that for us to properly understand this answer, David has to come on uh, to a second hour and explain how this all works. So uh, I, I would love, I did a little research on the, on the vector synthesis and uh, looks really cool. So maybe we'll get David on and then we'll see it and then we'll have a better answer. And next question. Bob Sturdivant in San Antonio, Texas. Well, he's got some uh, need for help here. The wife loves listening to audiobooks on her yoke-type wireless earbuds, doesn't like the separated ones, even falls asleep with them. The mic gain picks up everything when she talks on the phone. Recommendations in the sub-$100 range, please. Uh, Alex? Uh, it's not $100 range, but I will say that the... Uh, um, I would recommend if, if you're talking about it picking up when she's on calls, I would recommend the the, the shocks uh, open comms because it's got a boom. And I use it specifically because it, it bothers people less when I'm on the phone with them because they just don't hear what I'm doing. The, the boom really cuts a lot of it out if that's what you're trying to solve. Nice. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, the blue Sona seems to be targeted at content creators and Zoom Teams callers. Which mic in its class would be useful for sung vocals? Alex, you have thoughts? I think the MV7 is probably in that in that same price point and uh, would probably be a pretty good uh, solution. Obviously, the SMB7 uh, would be, or SM7B would probably be the higher end uh, version of that that have been used for a long time. And next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Freer, Florida. Uh, thoughts on using a BBE282iX in the mic chain for Zoom? Alex? This is really more designed for infrastructure. So it's more designed for loudspeakers and rooms and so on and so forth. I, I don't think I would, I don't think it would make a difference in the, in the mic chain. I think you'd be adding processing that you don't need. It's really designed for how to clarify things for in a speaker system um, as opposed to uh, in a general audio chain. Mitch, you want to weigh in? Yeah, I agree with Alex. Uh, if you want an entry-level processor, a DBX262 series uh, uh, processor will work. And we've also suggested that um, we do a second hour on processors paired with microphones. Should be an interesting Or just uh, microphone subject. processing in general, even in post, I think would be mm -hmm. good. Nice. Next question. Uh, Douglas Carmichael here. Plug-in Alliance is selling their all bundle for $800. For someone that owns the Waves Mercury bundle and mixes mostly electronic music, is it worth it? I think if you're in the music business or something like that, there's a good chance. I know uh, most of the people I know who do music composition, things like that, their plug-in library is prodigious and they use very many of them. I know for those of us who do not do that as a living, we use very seldom when we buy a bundle. Uh, but Alex has thoughts and so does Mitchell. Alex? You just have to look at the, the, the of the plugins you're actually going to use that you don't get with what you already have and decide how much that would cost at the Waves um, at the, or at the Plugin Alliance's, whatever their sale costs are. <laughs> Look at their sale, because you'll always buy it on sale. So is it really going to, that's, and then you're just figuring out the math. Mitchell? Yeah, I own the Waves Platinum because the specific cherry-picked plug, plugins that I like, uh, they have about 80% of the ones I want. And if I were to buy them separately, even at $29, uh, it would be more expensive to do it that way. So it's not the number of plugins you get, it's the ones that you need that do a specific job. And I think if we're getting closer and closer to the point where you're going to select plugins for a specific task and how they excel at doing it, because not all plugins are created equally. Uh, next question. 
Jesse Kester from Glendale asking, looking at the different mid-journey tiers, I'm having trouble imagining the conversion rate from dollars to server time to proof quads to fully rendered single images. Can someone ballpark the value proposition for us? Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, so um, you, you you can get pretty far along with with uh, 15 hours of it if you're not doing it all day or doing doing it for three or four hours a day. Um, you know, so it's not, it's it, it's the th- server time and it's really hard to tell. What you do is you have to constantly be checking in. You can do it for a couple of days and then check in and see how much of my server time did I actually use. Remember that you can always stretch your server time out by going to relax. So if you do slash relaxed, um, you're now going to go into a, sl- it's going to just do quads. It will not do um, scale ups and it will take a little longer for those quads to be produced, but you can produce a lot of them. And that doesn't add to your fast hours. So you can coast for a long time with just building lots of quads and then at the end decide which ones you want to do it. I don't do that because I lose track of them. <laughs> like if I do, I, I, so I'd rather just pay more and have the the fast ones because I'm constantly scaling them up and then I have them rendered. Uh, I had one time where the server went down. It hasn't happened since that I lost, you know, there's no way for it to go back and do those. And so that was kind of a bit of a risk as well. So, so I, um, but it's not really a dollar to hour thing because you can constantly be switching gears back and forth. And the best thing to do is to do it and then look at what you're doing on a, you know, think about how much did I use it over the last day or two and then look at what it did. But it's not, it's, it's very hard for you to have a dollar to server relationship. All right. Next question. Bob Sturdivant in San Antonio, Texas, adding on to the AI discussion, has anyone used the Tome app that will generate presentations? I have not heard anybody say anything about it here on Office Hours. That doesn't mean someone hasn't. Alex, do you have some thoughts? Tome? It'll make presentations? I'm sorry. Like we're, okay, so I'm, I'm bookmarking it while you're talking. So let's let's get those guys on. We're, we're going to be talking again about bringing different people to talk about AI and, and talking about AI amongst ourselves a lot this year. And I hope that people don't mind, but it, I think it's a conversation that, that, we really, that we really need to keep having because it's going to affect our industry a lot. John Preto, you've been playing with it. Your thoughts? I can use this to, to create the presentation that I'm doing on AI right now. How about that? Oh, there you meta. go. Little, yeah, <laughs> very. And you got to produce all the images with Midjourney, and you have to put little little uh, uh, text blocks in. I I did. I already did the Midjourney. <laughs> I got to. I got to tell you, we we did. Um, uh, we had. Uh, um, we started doing uh, Chinese, you know, the the um, fortune cookies, and we and and it's really great. We were like, do fortune cookies like as if they were Star Wars, and then we did do fortune cookies as if, as if we were the Imperial Empire, do fortune cookies as if we were Romulans, and do for you know, and you keep we started changing all of these, and it just kept on generating great fortune cookies, and it and I was like, okay, I don't know. Uh, the fortune cookie business really needs to pay attention to this because you could really, you could really solve a lot of problems. We could solve the world's problems with fortune cookies. Hey, we have a spare minute between now and making the turnover at the top of the hour. So I wanted to ask you, Alex, any more hints about next Tuesday? I understand there's a special guest. No, that was in. last Tuesday. You missed it. Oh, was it? Oh, did I? Oh, oh no. So, yeah, gosh, I was taking it. Well, well, I hope it was really exciting. <laughs> it was. Can, it was great. Can we so, talk about who came, or is that no. still still under wraps? Oh <laughs> man. Cannot. So uh, yeah, so we can't talk about it, but it was great. All I can say is that I would highly recommend uh, if. Um, uh, I would if highly Alex makes an announcement about a special guest, pay it's attention. It's good to be there on Tuesday. It's good to be there on Tuesday. So it was a great, it was a great discussion. We had we covered a lot of ground. Um, okay. With, so, yeah. 
So we are at the top of the hour. And now, as we promised, we're going to talk a little bit about cameras, specifically about which cameras might be the best uh, in their classes for now. Um, this is a wide-ranging thing. And as you know, most of the people here on the panel uh, are in the production art. Some of them are in the computer side, but a lot of us actually do field production. So we're going out and capturing imagery all the time. And there, this is, uh, to my mind, this is the golden age of the ability to do that. When I was starting in my career, it was extraordinarily expensive to get your hands on a camera that could do broadcast level work. If you didn't have a beta cam or something serious, if you didn't have uh, a full size shoulder camera with XLR inputs for your audio and things like that, you couldn't really play. And boy, has that changed over the course of the last decade plus. Nowadays, even the cameras in phones produce images at an unbelievably high level for what we had in those days. And so a lot of people want to shoot. And, and there's so much range in these offerings that deciding what's best for you is exactly what our, what our discussion is going to be about today. We'll talk about all ranges. Make sure that your questions are in there. If you've been thinking about buying or replacing or upgrading your capabilities, there's never been a better time. Uh, we're going to start with Alex, and he's going to give us his view of kind of where the state of the art is and the things that he uses, and then others will join in. Alex? And I pretty regularly use a pretty wide range of cameras and uh, everything from my iPhone up to, you know, Airy, you know, Aries. And uh, we make decisions every every show uh, on what camera system we're going to use. And it is, and it again, it's almost a gradient that goes, you know, up depending on what we're looking for. Um, a couple of things that we think about is number one, of course, is what kind of source data is it going to generate? What kind of resolution? What frame rate? What... Uh, you know, the frame rate, the color depth, all those things that are, are, are there. Number two is, is what kind of features can I get to quickly? Because in a, in a production, and sometimes like I have lots of time to set up in a production, I may not. And so what, what is going to allow me to do the work very, very quickly? And then um, how can I accessorize it? What can I add? Can I add new lenses? Can I add matte boxes? Can I add separate controls? Can I add all these other things? How does it interface with a larger system to allow it to, um, you know, to allow us to control it remotely, to allow us to feed into, a, you know, with lots of cameras together. And so we make, you know, and, and so, and what's our end output? And is it live or is it, is it post? And so those are the kind of things that we decide. I shoot most of my work. <laughs> I shoot most of the things I shoot uh, on an iPhone because it's family stuff and it's smaller things and it's little bits of training. Um, I step up to, you know, a lot of, you know, the Black Magics. We have a lot of the Black Magic uh, 6Ks um, that we use for um, the stuff that, you know, it can shoot incredible footage. If you know what you're doing with it, the interface is really great. You can control it with a switcher. You can um, get great footage out of it that, that's very, very usable, and it can be used at it. You could definitely shoot a feature film with it. Um, and so it's great. The 12Ks give me, you know, we have a bunch of 12Ks, and, and those 12Ks give us the ability to go to high frame rate um, and higher resolution if we want to. So we can, you know, the multiple frame rates and multiple resolutions are the big power of the, of the 12Ks, as well as the Ursas, all the mini Ursas, that body gives us a lot of controls on the outside. We can get to things very quickly. Can't shade with the 12K, not that I'm bitter, but you can uh, with the uh, broadcast <laughs> version. So, so anyway, um, so, the, uh, so those are where we switch up. The next big jump for us um, when we make these decisions is we jump to typically Venice's and, and Aries after that. So um, now those PTZ cameras that we go into were extremely excited about the FR7, um, which is the PTZ camera that is 
um, that Sony just released. So I'm hopefully going to be testing it in, in uh, January. So, so stay tuned for that. But the FR7 is something we're really excited about because we get a lot of the short depth of field that we want. Um, and then we usually jump to Venice's and in, in Aries. And, and the main thing is Venice's we find are a, a bit more, um, they're a bit more flexible for live. So they're a much more live built camera. Now, Airy has a new Super 35 that is, um, that is a, uh, we haven't gotten it tested yet in production, but it looks like it's, it's, it's great and has, it's more, Aries tended to not be great in live, um, the larger ones. So, and then after that, we're of course using, you know, Aries, Airy LFs. Um, in, in that in that group, the airy is the easiest one to go. I'm going to go out and shoot something great, and I want it to work as soon as I turn it on. <laughs> you know, and so and you know the, the between the color science and the the way it's set up, um, it just produces a very pleasing image very very quickly, um, and it, and it's very hard to screw it up. And so um, so that is the. Uh, you know, that, that's the thing that, that you'll see a 70, 80% of films out there are being shot with the Aries. And so it just depends on, um, what you're looking for, but all of them are valid and we use them almost, I, I use them almost in equal amounts. Chris Fenwick. Um, surely, you know, there's a wide range of cameras. I, in my work, in my business, we create what I would call, you know, consumable video, not entertainment video. And, um, <clears throat> uh, I'm more convinced uh, I, I've been, and I've been saying that we are on this path for, I've been saying it for at least a decade now on various podcasts and whatnot. Uh, but I'm more convinced than ever that we have a, arrived at the place that for consumable video, I, I think the iPhone is the last camera you ever need. I think anything beyond that is just, uh, and again, I'm not talking about entertainment, Alex, I know that in the Apple, uh, uh, world that Apple gets, um, or at least they used to, gets kickbacks from the service providers for the phone, which clearly are giving us uh, a better price for this very, very advanced little computer that we shove in our pockets. Um, what do you think, what, what do you think the dollar return on that is? How much would an iPhone cost me if I didn't get if Apple wasn't making money off the service provider, do you have any idea? Uh, I don't and where that, I'm going with this is, do you think Apple would ever just make a camera? Oh, well, I guess what I would say, I, I don't think Apple will just make a camera. I think that they're just going to keep on making the camera on that phone to be a lot better. Um, you know, I don't think that Apple would go down that path. I think that the, I think Apple has thought about it. Um, there's definitely been rumors that a camera bounced around, but that's been a long time ago. Um, I think that that continuing to make the iPhone and um, you know a better and better camera, you know, mostly using comp computational photography, you know, computational, um, is where you know, and and how we shot. I mean, I I just shot some test footage, some test stills with the uh, the forty eight megapixel you know uh, setting. Wow, <laughs> a lot of data in there, uh, and they're big. They're big files and. Uh, you know, it's not going to be very far before Apple's able to do that 48 megapixel in video. You know, like it's, you know, we're just, you know, a couple iPhones away. Anytime they're doing something in stills, eventually they're going to, you know, when we saw a portrait, we didn't, you know, eventually they'll, they'll figure out how to do it in video as well. It's just a matter of what processor they put into it. So I don't think that they're, the, the, the issue is, is that you could build a camera and serve a very small vertical market, or you could build a phone and sell 75, you know, million of them, you know, and I think that that's the, um, you know, models just make the phone a lot better. And, and I think that the, the big thing that's missing for me uh, in the, 
in the phone area is the interface. So, you know, Filmic Pro is really great, but it's still you're tapping on a screen. And I think that eventually what we need to do is have somebody plugging something in. And I think we'll see this as we move to USB-C, um, you know, on the phone is that, you know, what we really need is someone to build an interface around it. So the phone becomes kind of a, you know, like there's a, a more of an interface so I can grab onto things and turn things and make those adjustments and, and, and have, tr I would rather, and I've been talking about this for over a decade, slide the phone into something that makes it more useful and then pull it back out again, rather than trying to get the, a, a camera that did everything, have interfaces. And this happened. I mean, Sony built a lens that would pop onto the front and talk to the phone. Um, other people have kind of built some, a lot more of this in, on the Android side, um, but people have talked about it, but I think that we're going to, we're going to see more of this. I think as that phone becomes more useful is to build a whole thing around it that is talking to the phone. And I think that could be a next step for something like Filmic or something that have a piece of hardware that turns it into a camera, you know, and, um, you know, and, because and, and, what we're missing right now is not necessarily the quality because a lot of the quality is there. It's really the being able to get to that interface quickly. And when you're opening on a screen, you're tapping on it, whether it's shoot or filmic or whatever, there's just a lot of tap, 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 tap. And, and you know, the clients sitting there looking at you <laughs> doing something while you're trying to figure it out. We need to be able to dial those things in and, and so on and so forth. And I think that's the thing that we that's missing right now. We jumped over Courtney. Let's go back and pick up his comment. Courtney? Um, yeah, I was just going to say in professional film production, you know, the area is king of the hill and has been for a number of years now, but the Sony is making uh, big inroads with the Venice. Like if you saw Top Gun Maverick, you saw the in cockpit filming, they use Venice cameras, uh, mainly because they could take uh, uh, the cameras and separate them because the Venice has a way of separating what? the the. And I'm sure the airy probably does too. It doesn't. It it, it, it doesn't. doesn't. The, the separating the optical block is something that is, is that actually started with the camera with the camera behind me. That that 950. That 950 with yeah. the optical block. Oh, would I come remember out. that. And but the reason the recorders were huge. Well, and the and the issue really was with that was that the um the the problem was is you couldn't put the camera on a motion control arm. I mean, this was literally an ILM request for the camera, which is that hey, we need you to take that. We this is too heavy to put on a motion control arm, can you just take this, the part that we need and take it out? And so the optical block, getting being able to separate the optical block from the body, and then there's a big tether that goes to it, um, was something that started with the 950. And, um, and, as, and so Sony has that technology they've been developing for 20 years uh, because of that. And, um, and so it's, that, that is an advantage of being able to do that, a huge advantage. Yeah, and you can put a full, a full size on the lens on just that little optical block that you see on the right there yeah. and separate it from the recorder and that's comes in very handy especially if you're doing anything that's going to be whipping the camera around moving it rapidly yeah. a lot less mass to move around tj i was having a discussion with my son the other day who actually does video production and part of the thing to kind of keep in mind is um, the target market you are looking to get into or be a part of um, whether that's um, either a local area group or if it's a, a segment of the industry, what is the uh, accepted minimum standard, I guess is the way to put it, for um, what type of uh, image you can get out of the camera? Can you color grade the um, files that are coming out? Um, do other area uh, photographers, cinematographers, what have you in the area, have other equipment that you can use or rent you know does the rental house in your area have the equipment for that particular camera or, or do you have to you know 
um, go online to rent something or if something breaks, you know, can you get back up into production right away by calling the rental house and say, hey, give me a replacement here today, you know, in two hours because we're down. So those are kind of things you need to keep in mind as you're looking at the camera systems, I think. Mitch? I want to get back to the uh, the iPhone versus a camera. This is a this is a phone that has a camera in it, although it is a six. Um, and a professional camera is purpose built to do exactly what it does, and it's meant to be moved around. It's meant to be uh, connected to other devices. And although a uh, iPhone 14 Pro can make pretty pictures, it's not a professional camera. It doesn't have the the stuff that connects, interconnects with it doesn't have the ability to put proper lenses on it. Um, I think that the iPhone is uh, responsible for dumbing down the quality of uh, professionally shot videos, and certainly in the film industry. This does not make you an independent filmmaker. Uh, people are acting like it is, but it is not. Well, it could be argued that owning an area Alexa doesn't make you an independent filmmaker either. You have to learn how to use it. Uh, so, Alex. The other thing you want to look at is the weight that it takes to produce the content and what you're going to use the content for. So, for instance, when I build training videos on how to build our kits or how to do other things, I use an iPhone. Like, I'm not using a 6K. I'm not using anything bigger. I don't want short depth of field. Um, I want it to be, and I and what I know is that I can hold it with one hand and sit there and have someone do something and go like this, and now I want to go over here, and then I want to do this. So it's super flexible. Again, the same thing that happened when I started going into covering events, we started with really big cameras and we used short depth of field cameras. We used big cameras, small cameras to cover things like CES and IBC and NAB. And by the end, I was just using a phone. And the reason is, is that that content, as Chris was talking about earlier, isn't disposable. Like it's not like, and, and what, what I, what I wanted was the, the ability to turn it fast, you know, and, and be able to, you know, just churn out, um, that, um, you know, that content and it was very convenient. And so, so you do have to look at it and I'll tell you, an enormous amount of news content is gen generated with um, with iPhones. We uh, I we used to have an office at 2000M, uh, 20th and M in DC, which is kind of the hub of all the international uh, news organizations because Eurovision comes out of there. And um, uh, we would see all the time them wandering around. They have a little, they had a little uh, tripod and they had their little mic and they, they'd set their iPhone, you know, just out of reach of them. So, that, you know, so they could get it or someone tried to grab it off the street, but they were setting it down on the street and that used to be three people. And then it was just the reporter with an iPhone and they're sending all these hits back to Russia and France and wherever they were, wherever they were doing it and putting themselves wherever they needed to be, um, you know, for, especially for disposable content, it was super useful. Mitchell. To Alex's point about size, um, uh, there's a trend, certainly with Ari, making the LF Mini, uh, which is tiny. It's only about yay big as far as the camera body goes. Uh, and, you you know, you can build it up into something else. But um, I don't think that's really the issue. I think the issue is, uh, it's also your subject of your discussion here, is what, what camera for what job? And as Alex just mentioned, uh, I could see newscasters using this. Uh, the mistake I made when I did an eye cast uh, of the flood we had here for a CNN as I shot it this way, rookie mistake. So it's just good enough for a lot of people. That's the problem. Chris Fenwick. And <clears throat> for the record, Alex, I didn't call it disposable video, but ironically, you're it's pretty much spot on. That's like there's just so much like news news footage is, is disposable. Anything that I think of disposable video is anything that we're going to watch once. And we're never going to go back and watch it again. Like, it's just not, you know, like, it's not something we're trying to save and, um, or, or, yeah. or, or, or syndicate. We're just going to be, it's going to be this, 
this moment, you know, and and I think that the other thing that we should look at also is the tie-in between, you know, for Apple or Samsung, the tie-in between the devices that are going to play it and the devices that are shooting it. They're building an entire pipeline that goes between between all of those. You know, there's going to be a point somewhere soon where Apple says, hey, by the way, we can do 120 frame per second out of the, the Apple TV currently is capable of it. They're not doing it. And by the way, all the phones do that as well. And then people are going to get used to 120 frames per second, and then it will ruin their film going experience because everything will look framey. I can tell you from experience, like you'll just be like, why are there so many frames? You know, like what or so few frames? Like why is it jumping across the, 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 the screen on big moves? And, and they'll get super sensitive to it. And that'll be, that'll be the end of that. The part of this I want to emphasize is that for the last maybe seven or eight years, maybe 10 years, uh, the most important word for me has been workflow. And that is anything that happens from the time something is captured in the camera till it gets to the audience you're aiming it for. And each of these choices and what you're shooting on has an impact on the workflow. If you have a Blackmagic 6K, are you shooting in RAW? Or are you shooting in ProRes? It's going to affect how quickly you can get that stuff processed through and out and whether or not you're doing it for long range content where you want color grading, things like that, or whether you're delivering into a pipeline where you have to have it at the end of the conference tonight and you don't have the time to do specific grading. So part of this process, when you buy a camera, when you choose a system, you are buying into a workflow and it's worthwhile examining the whole workflow. What you have now, your computer, its robustness, um, all the interconnections, whether or not you're going to be able to get it out of your camera immediately and up to the cloud if that's what you need, or whether you're going to have three days to build your program in at your desk afterwards. That determines what camera might be the most intelligent purchase for you. So that having been said from my point, let's move on to our questions. Ari Black from Tel Aviv, Israel has a first camera question. Recently chose the Sony a7 IV over the Blackmagic 6K Pro for now. If you had to choose, what would your criteria and specific use cases for each? Jesse, so start us off. Uh, we shot a lot on the Alpha Series cameras, and the only reason we moved over from that is because we could afford to uh, move from a hybrid camera to two dedicated cameras. So we did move into the Blackmagic family and for, for the video side and Canon for the uh, photo side. Sony's color science has improved a lot in the last five years, and I would be very excited to, to get back into the Alpha series if we were looking for a hybrid. Mitchell? If you're shooting uh, photography and using it for video, the a7 IV is certainly a great camera to use. Um, if you're just doing mainly video and you're comparing it straight up with a Blackmagic 6K, I would go to more something like the FX3, which I'm using right here. The big advantage of the Sony over the 6K is autofocus. It's the best in the business. Boom. Boom. Alex Lindsay. Totally agree with Mitch that the, the autofocus is like the killer thing that within the the entire Sony series. Uh, the the I am very close to getting a, 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 a the four um, the the A seven um, S four uh, or R four. Anyway, the I'm looking at getting that, and specifically because of the resolution of the stills that I can get sixty megapixel or sixty one megapixel images, you know, out of that for photogrammetry, and then I can also shoot video with it. Um, I also think that the Sony look is very pleasing, um, you know, when it's graded well. Uh, it doesn't produce the same bit rate, you know, for content, so you will have less to work with. So you have to be more happy with what comes out of the camera. Um, you know, you'll have more, and and that integration of the camera with resolve for instance um you know 
between the 6K and Resolve is is pretty tight. And so you want to think about that too. And then live, um, I would never use, I mean, people use the A7, but I wouldn't use it in a live environment. The other thing nobody talks about is when the A7 came out, its low light capabilities were startling for the time. Now, I know that other camera manufacturers have closed that gap and maybe even surpassed it in some ways. But I remember going out, I think I've told this story before, I went out with a group of photographers and when the A7 first came out, we took it out as a test with one of the photo shops, went out to the Superstition Mountains, and it was a stormy night. It was so stormy. There was such a heavy cloud cover. And we were so far out of town that literally looking out from where the camera was positioned, it was nothing but blackness. You literally could not see a foot and a half in front of you. So the camera guy and I were working together and he said, well, let's do a really long exposure. And I said, well, I can't see anything. I don't even know if I'm framed correctly. And he said, hey, let's try it. So I think we set up something like a uh, maybe 70-second exposure. That We cranked the ISO up to 10,000 or 15,000 or something insane. And I was expecting this horribly noisy, poorly exposed, poorly framed photo. And this is what came out of the camera. And to this day, I remember the feeling of looking at that photo and thinking, oh, my gosh, everything has changed in terms of the light capture ability of cameras. It is a decent picture in the most awful lighting circumstance that I have ever faced in my career. Now, that has entirely migrated to video. We can't do that with everything else. It's a specific circumstance, but it told me that things were changing. And I think they have changed a lot. So I give Sony props for busting through that high ISO with still extremely low noise barrier that we all believed was true back in the day. And it continues to advance since then. Let's go to the next question. And it's from Joe Kidd in the Bay Area, California. Uh, uh, the company Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company Limited, sorry, got that right, uh, yesterday celebrated mass production of its three nanometer process node. Which camera brands are likely to take early advantage of the possibilities of three nanometer unlocks, particularly for heat dissipation in a smaller form factor body? Cheers. Alex. None anytime soon because Apple will have <laughs> have that locked up for about a, you know three or four years. So I, I think we shouldn't hold our breath. I don't think that the the sign that that type of thing really is going to benefit them as much. Cameras can get a lot smaller. The real problem is the sensor size and the in the hands that have to run them um, are really the a lot of the limiting factors there. And so um, and some heat dissipation. But I, I think that it's. Uh, I think it's be very hard for anyone outside of a phone manufacturer, whether it's Samsung or Apple, to get a hold of three nanometer for at least three to five years. Courtney, you had some thoughts? Well, obviously, the action cameras, the GoPros, the uh, the ones that, you know, the small where smaller is better and even smaller is even better. Um, so, you know, where you can clip them onto your goggles or glasses or, you know end of your skis you can get a lot more action photography in with uh, smaller devices and three nanometers means smaller sensors small, smaller more processing and a smaller chip and easier and uh, lower power it runs longer and runs cooler so all of the above yeah sounds like it's another big leap forward uh, next question Ari Block from Tel Aviv, Israel's back. Recommended cage for Sony a7 IV. Also, which must-have grips and gadgets would you recommend for it? Uh, TJ Asher is going to start us. For smaller cameras, uh, like DSLR style, I like the small rig uh, cages. They have a lot of accessories available for them. Um, and I would, for 
what you need, I would maybe think of a side handle or maybe a universal top handle and maybe potentially a swivel uh, monitor mount. Jesse? Uh, we budget a tilt-a-cage, just the basic tilt-a-cage, not the fully built out with the wooden handles and all that stuff uh, into every camera we purchase. And we also budget a Pelican 1510 when we're doing DSLR level cameras. Mitchell Hill. Uh, plus one on Jesse's answer. I have Tilta on my uh, FX3. I have Small Rig on my little ZVE10. Uh, the Tilta ecosystem is good because you can do everything from focus pull uh, to handles and all kinds of crazy uh, uh, add-ons and stuff to really build it out. And rods, which are nice if you have a big lens on the front of the camera. Alex. Yeah, I, I I've generally bought in small rig. I have to admit, looking at the Tilta options here, I might lean towards a Tilta. Um, it's just the ecosystem looks a little bit, and that cage actually looks uh, superior. Think about how you're going to hold something. Like for for uh, Black Magic, we often think about where we're going to put drives. I don't know if you can really do that with the Sony, but but we, we figure out where where's the external drive going to get mounted um, in that area. But for the Sony, I don't think that that's an option. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, asking, could an FR7 be ceiling mounted on a stirrup for large training room? Which lens would you recommend uh, in this configuration? Thanks. Alex? Alex? It could, but I wouldn't. <laughs> like, like this is, I, I think that you're, I, the FR7 is something we're really excited about. Um, I probably wouldn't use an FR7 in a training room with, you know, in a hybrid training experience because you're going to have, you know, challenges with short tip of the field. You're going to have challenges with, um, you know, how, what the reach is on it and so on and so forth, where you can get a, a BRC 1000 or a, or the uh, Panasonic 160 or 150 are going to do what you need it to do um, without, um, without much, you know, and, and they're, they're a little bit more automatic um, and they're and kind of built into that. So I would recommend those in that environment um, because they're going to have a lot more throw at the same resolution, not a lot of switching around or jumping around. I don't know if you really need short depth of field in the environment that you're um, putting in. I think the FR7 is going to be great for those of us who want to build studios with it or build events with really short depth of field. And, and again, much closer to a, uh, closer to a digital first event, um, than, than a, uh, than kind of a hybrid. Next question. Wouter Wienerfresco from Amsterdam, the Netherlands, asking for our local TV station. We're looking at buying four Blackmagic Design Studio 4K Pros. Any advice for the lens? Studio lens only. Mark Giuliani is going to help us out, Mark. So it's a micro four-thirds camera. Panasonic has a line of these lenses. Uh, they're 12 to 35, has a 35 millimeter equivalent of a 24 to 70. So just be careful when you purchase the lenses, how they're going to, you know, respond to your zooming in and out. Alex. Yeah, the, the, the other thing you can do is you, there is an adapter. So you can adapt down to B4 from a, you know, you can take the, the four, micro four-thirds and adapt to a B4 lens. That opens you up to all the standard broadcast lenses that you may want to add to that camera. So that, that might be another thing to look at. What, we've, what I've used in the past are the Fujinon uh, Cabrios, which are really designed for the Super 35. So those are the ones that I've used more. Um, and that probably wouldn't be the right solution for that camera. We used Ursa's. Uh, in that in environment, and they were extremely effective. Um, the the eighty five to three twenty or three hundreds, and the uh, um, the nineteen to nineties, or the or the twenty to one twenties. Next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana, asking: Shoots web controls have fairly extensive controls on iOS. What more would be needed to turn a mobile phone into a production camera? 
Well, I still think as somebody shot for a long time that the the biggest gulf between the phone cameras and the production cameras is automated lenses, um, particularly zoom lenses for the last 20 years, ENG style shooting has relied on a smooth rocker uh, controlled zoom lens to be able to change your focal length over the course of something. It really means that you don't have to zoom with your feet and continue to move in and out from a subject in an ENG run and gun kind of circumstance. So until phones have that there, I will always separate phones into uh, one category of shooting versus actual cameras with lens uh, attachments into another category. But that's just me. Alex, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that the interface for shoot would be probably pretty difficult to use as a filming interface. I, I really look at shoot as a as an app that works really well in a live environment and works well when I'm trying to tweak something specific. But if I was going into production, you know, this is where Filmic Pro is really, you know, they've really spent all their time working on and they do a lot of things. They don't do a lot of things that shoot does. And it's, shoot is, I think of it as kind of an, a, uh, um, a Swiss Army knife of being able to do anything with your phone, but oftentimes the interface becomes super important, and it's a little interface heavy to do, you know, to do production in, um, in my opinion. Like to do, if I was really doing like a film production with a phone, um, I do think that external controls are, are what a lot of us are going to want next, as the camera now has the sensor to shoot really good footage. Um, but I, but I think that that's, I still think Filmic Pro is probably. Uh, the top of the heap as far as providing a interface for a filmmaker just because that's all they've done um is is um is done that and it's a little expensive but it but it does solve that problem next question jesse mills san francisco bay area uh J jesse asks what are some of the current methods to add uvc control capability to a camera without native uvc the goal is to control a camera with uvc and another protocol like visca alex yeah we what we've done in the past is controlled PTZ cameras using Visca, but using an IP connection between the two and a, and a, and a VPN. So I know that's probably not what you want, but that's how we've done it in the past is um, to, to, do, um, uh, to, to, to build that out. So it's a, it's a VPN between the locations. Once they get to the location, we have to convert those commands. There's lots of ways to convert from IP to Visca, and then the Visca command goes out to the camera. And so those are the ways that we've done it in the past. Um, we are experimenting pretty heavily with, um, I just got it, I got a, yet a, thir a fourth one um, of this. Uh, so one of the things we're going to test in the next couple of days is taking these little links and hooking four of them up to a, a Zoom room <laughs> and having someone control stuff remotely. We think there might be some shortcomings there, but we're going to, our job is to push it forward. So, um, so we're going to try that. Um, I think that that's going to make an incredible little kit to send out to people um, to, to make that happen. Jesse, hopefully that got you the information you need. Let's go to the next question. Next one in from Joe Kidd in Bay Area, California. Is it within reason Blackmagic Design releases a fanless 6K pocket cinema camera in calendar year 2023? Jesse Kester. No, no. The, the need for airflow and heat dissipation is too great for that camera. Um, if you're hoping for something like that, perhaps I, I would be hoping for a software feature where you can uh, quiet the fan during filming for short short bursts until the sensor gets too hot and it needs to re-engage the fan. Alex? Just try shooting with a red and then the, then the 6K will seem really, really quiet. <laughs> I've had ham, uh, cameras that sounded like yeah. AWACS learning, uh, dropping to the deck of a shiver. It's just some, heat is an issue. It's definitely to an what, issue. To what Jesse sensor. said, what you really want is something that runs the fan really high while you're, while you're, uh, 
you know, between records and then just turns off when you hit record. That's what, that's the, the real preferable way to handle that. Yeah, that makes sense. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, could a Marshall camera be useful as a desktop camera? Mitch, you want to take a shot at that? Have you used one? Sure. I think they're uh, they're nice little cameras. Uh, they're rather small, like the, I think it's a 2255. Uh, they have SDI out, which is nice. Removable lenses, uh, but you're not going to get that nice little um, <clears throat> depth of field, uh, close focus stuff that uh, that we've all come to love and respect. But um, as, a, as, as far as making pictures, no problem. It'll work. Uh, next question. Joe Kidd in the Bay Area, California, asking, should Blackmagic Design update the lens mount system on its pocket cinema cameras? Which mirrorless-type brand family would be the most likely choice? Which lens mount would you prefer on an updated Blackmagic pocket cinema camera 6K? Let's start with Alex and then go to Jesse. Alex? Given how much glass I have already, uh, Canon is... <laughs> <laughs> the EF is what I really prefer. I don't want to see them change it anytime soon because, you know, I have way more glass than I have uh, investment in glass than I have investment in the cameras. So um, so changing that would be something that I hope they do very slowly. And I hope they continue to give us the shims that we need to replace those. You know, right now what we do is we swap those Ursas out for PL or, or EF and we just we, we, we can swap those mounts out for them. It feels like you're doing a little mechanical surgery, but it's not that hard once you've done it a couple times. Um, so the uh, so hopefully they don't they don't do it. We've seen them do partnerships with Nikon in the past, so I think if they do something, my guess is they're gonna they're gonna partner with Nikon. Jesse, I could see a world where the 6K Pro has a PL mount, but that really I feel like they save that to nudge you into their higher class, as do most camera manufacturers. Well, it'll do B4, so you can get a lot of broadcast lenses that'll that'll fit on it. So, uh, Tom Ferguson? I'd say the Canon RF mount would be a good choice. If it's good enough for red, why not black magic? Yeah, so there's a lot of possibility there. Hopefully, you'll find what you're looking I, for, Joe. You go ahead, Alex. By the way, all I'll say is that uh, I think that the RF is probably the last lens that, out, that, that black magic will use because Canon changed it and they uh, licensed it, so they're making everybody pay to use the RF and that is something that black magic does not do. Like it's like, a, it is a, um, and so the, the fact that they've changed it, um, will probably that's, I think that's probably why you're seeing, uh, black magic cozy up to Nikon is specifically because Canon, um, opened up the RF and closed up its ability, your ability to, um, or people's ability to, to just make lenses for it or, or make mounts for it. They, they want licensing on all of that. I think the next big play if they did uh the micro four thirds m mounts because they're selling a lot of glass actively in that category so to make it to make the system open to that might be the next session but we'll see uh next question james babbitt san diego california which full frame camera is best for low light video is the sony a7s3 the best for low light video uh alex is going to give you the expensive version but let's go on from there <laughs> The best, the best, well, yeah. the best low light. <laughs> you didn't say the best for a certain price. You just said the best. Uh, the Canon ME20 is the best. Um, now, it, there are some limitations. It is only 1080p. It's not 4K or higher resolution, but it goes up to something like three and a half million ISO. And Bill was talking about being able to see it and doing long, long exposures. This is shooting video. We've done events where we're shooting video and we cannot see 
in front of us and we've tested, you know, and, and, and you're seeing perfectly well lit. We were doing it in some theaters where we were putting it up above and we had the Emmy, the Emmy 200, which is the $5,000 version. The Emmy 20 is the $20,000 version, but it will shoot at night in the dark and give you back an image that you can use. It's, it's, that's the, the best low light. Outside of that, the one that I have used in the field for low light is the Sony A7S III. Um, and I've taken that into some pretty, uh, stressful locations, um, and, and shot, um, some, some pretty good footage and it's kind of amazing how dark it is. And then I still get footage I can actually use. Hey, you can't frame anything, but it's amazing when you see that picture come out. It's like a Polaroid. It's you, you look at it like, nothing. this is going to work. This is going to work. Whoa. And then you get it and you're like, oh, it's going to work. <laughs> it's amazing. Mitch, you had a thought? Yeah, I'll start in the top end. Uh, the Sony Venice has excellent uh, low light, uh, can, even better than the Ari does. Not the better color, but the better low light specs. And working my way down the Sony uh, tree there, an FX6 would be fine or an FR7 because it, they're uh, pretty much identical. Next question. Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. Morning, guys. What small form factor cameras get the most creative angles specifically for live streaming? Jesse Kessler is going to help us. I'm really enjoying the Blackmagic Micro Cinema Camera for the uh, shots around the studio. For example, this is uh, the cinema camera overhead with a 7.5 millimeter lens. The sensor is smaller than what you'd find on a Blackmagic Pocket Cinema 4K, so be ready for that crop factor. Alex? Yeah, a lot of people are hoping that Blackmagic eventually updates that micro because the micro is a great little camera that you can put in a lot of great places, and they have not updated it for like a decade. And it's really a bummer because it, it, it with a better sensor, it's just such a great little form factor and it has great little controls and um, it's still one of the best in that in that uh, in that form factor. Um, a lot of us also use GoPros, but obviously it's a much different experience as far as what you can and can't do with it, and being able to shade it and being able to control lenses for the right the power iOS um, are are great. And looking ahead in the queue, we might have enough room for a few more questions if people want to send them in. But right now, we're going to the next one. Rob Collins, Kansas City, Missouri, asking, what would be a good beginner camera for mounting on a desk as a great webcam, but can also be pulled off and taken out for a day of shooting? Mark Giuliani. This isn't, there's not too many opinions on this question, I bet. But anyway, iPhones make great uh, cameras for both. But if you really want a camera that allows you to substitute lenses, uh, there's a Canon M50. I believe Courtney used to have one if he's still not using it that has the full range of EF lenses you can add to it. So you can learn more about photography and aperture and getting that, that sense of uh, out of focus in the background and focus in the foreground. Mitch Hill. Um, this little guy here from Sony is great. It's a ZV-E10. Um, I've got a nice little uh, powered zoom uh, servos powered lens on it. It's probably worth more than the actual camera itself. But um, it does the job. I'll tell you what. Um, I would probably have bought this uh, had it been out when I bought my FX3 for a webcam. I think this would have done the job. And this is the camera that I grab anytime I got to run out the door and shoot something. Oh, there's something going on outside. Boom. This guy's in my hand and I'm out shooting with it. Alex? I would still go for the 6K. It's, it's still, it's really the easiest one to use. Uh, it's what we, a lot of us use for our main camera. And uh, you can just pick it up and go out and shoot. And you have the, I still think that the interface on the back of it is far superior. You can get to more things uh, faster on it than almost any other camera that, I, that I've ever used. Jesse Kester, you want to weigh in? 
And if you're on Ventura, consider trying out your iPhone. Um, this is currently wirelessly connected to the computer, and I'm going to cut to that camera now, I think. Yes. So now I am on that camera, and you see the delay is not bad. There's some frame staggering there. But as, a, as an entry level, just pick up and play today kind of thing, uh, it's a good starter piece. Yeah, I have to say that Apple did some uh, definite work on making your iPhone capable as a web camera, the new system uh, where you can get two views either at you from mounted on top of your screen or down to the keyboard uh, shows that they're at least thinking that that's one of the use cases that people wanted to do with their iPhones. Next question. Brian Anderson in Silver Spring, Maryland. For a while now, the Sigma... 18 to 35 millimeter f1.8 DC HSM art lens has been what most people suggest as a good all-around lens for a Blackmagic 6K. Is that still a good option? TJ Asher. I like the 24 to 70 range uh, on my Pocket Cinema 6K, and I'm actually using the Sigma uh, brand, the 24 to 70, and I think it's actually better built than my Canon lens. <laughs> Alex? Yeah, I use the 24 to 70. I have the Canon L series or a bunch of these. Um, and so the Canon 24 to 70 is what is kind of our bread and butter lens. Um, I also own a 16 to 35, which I, don't, I like having, but don't use as much. Jesse? Uh, we shoot on the Sigma 18 to 35 a lot. And one of the things I really like about it is that it's a very neutral lens. It doesn't really have any unique characteristics or personality of its own. One of the things I don't like about it is that it's a very neutral lens. It doesn't really have any unique characteristics of its own. Chris Fenwick. Brian, for argument's sake, I'm on a Blackmagic 6K with that Sigma 18-35. I will say uh, on the ATEM switcher, you know, there's a little button that says, boop, you know, find the focus. It, it, it's horrible. I'm watching Mitch showing off his autofocus and the auto focus through the switcher button is it's comical it's pretty bad but and, but this is but this is the image quality you'd be looking at a lot of people i know who shoot uh, a lot i've always said that if you have something on the real low end like an 18 to 35 uh, mid-range and 2470 has spoken a lot i actually used a 24105 the reason is that it was f four and I was shooting mostly in Arizona and I had more problem with too much light than I did with not enough light, but that's a call. The 2470 is, is an extremely good lens. And then uh, something in the range up 24, uh, the 70 to 200 big white Canon lenses were typical. And if you have those three lenses, you pretty much cover the whole range and they adapt to video really easily. So it just depends on the kind of work you're doing and what you need around. Let's quick, go to the next quick, question. Uh, oh, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Quick, yeah. quick uh, uh, follow up. Alex, does does the lens choice you said you use the uh, uh, the Canon lenses? Does the lens choice change the quality of how the autofocus works with the Canons? No. no, it's it's not it's not the lens that's having the trouble. It's the it's the how. Um, basically, my understanding of the Black Magic is it's using basically an edge finder. It's like a high pass filter um, that that looks for edges, and it, it basically it. It's if you do a high pass filter on something, you'll see something be all gray, but the lines where the edges are, it's how sharpening works and everything else, like in Photoshop. Um, it's using a version of that to find the focus on on something that's in the center. It's a very crude, crude way to do it. And the reason that they do that, I think, is because they really view this as a cinema camera, not a not a run and gun camera. In cinema, you're always putting 
gears and things sure. on the lenses. And so I think that was the the decision to not spend a lot of energy on autofocus because you should be, you, the intended purpose was to put motors and so on and so forth on the outside of the lens. Um, but yeah, there, it's a, it's that's the excuse I would use too, if I could exactly, figure exactly. out how to make it. It's, it's a pretty, it's a, again, it's a very crude solution, um, that, that gets you focus, but not, not nothing. I mean, Sony has spent Sony and Canon and Nikon are all competing in this realm and spent millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars on that autofocus. And so, um, because they're especially the ones that compete in sports or, or anyone who wants to be in Sony was trying to get into that where Nikon and, and can kind of open that up. And so you, the only way to do that is to have great autofocus. And so, so the, um, so Sony just, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what they put into it. It's, I'm sure it's tens of millions of dollars into that, into that autofocus. So, so, so for the record, uh, this, this focus, I think I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not too bad. Uh, I did manually. I'm now going to push the autofocus oh, button. No, don't do it. Don't do yeah, it. Yeah, here we go. You, you say goodbye from, mm-hmm. to me for the rest of the show. I'm pushing the audio, autofocus button, and there it's looking, and it's looking, and... No, I found nothing. Like, it just went to nothing. There we go. <laughs> like it's, it's, so, it, it depends on how big you are in frame, by the way. If you if you lean in a little bit, it'll focus. It'll, it just, it yeah, just can't I'll, find but it. But then when I sit where I want to sit, I'll be out of focus. Yes. So anyway, this is me for the rest of the day. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Next question. Software. Sorry. Uh, Question from Douglas Carmichael. I remember seeing a YouTube behind the scenes special, and a camera operator was complaining on comms that there was a problem with his One X Two X extender. What is that, and what does it do? Courtney. He was probably uh, referring to a teleconverter or a tele extender, which is a they make them in different values. It's basically an additional magnifying lens that goes at the back of your taking lens between the back of the lens and the body. And it uh, extends the focal length times two or times the multiplier. So it gives you a longer, longer focal range, but it can change your back focus. So uh, it can be a problem, problematic with zoom lenses because they may not track correctly going from forward to backward. You may have to reset the back focus if your camera has such a thing. So maybe that's what he was talking about. Alex? Yeah, and the other thing, some of the lenses actually have those extenders that can be dropped in like an ND filter, and you can swing them in. Um, I know, like the Canon fifty to the fifty to one thousand has a point one point five extender that you can just you can snap in in the lens, and that might be the kind of thing that might be getting um, not working. We've had that problem in the past where it won't engage. You also the reason that they don't leave it that way is because. You may want to go out to 50, not to 100, you know, and also that you may lose some light when you do it. But um, they can get a little cranky when they're built into the lens. Yeah, if you're putting it on a long lens that already is having trouble pushing a lot of light through, uh, you're going to lose a little bit. I've had that circumstance where I just wasn't able to get the shot I wanted, the exposure I wanted without uh, gaining up because I had an extender in the path trying to get a really long shot. So next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana, asking, I ended up uh, using Mevo as a filler cameras for small productions and B-roll. Some of their new software updates, as long as you can work in the limitations of no zoom, makes it more attractive. What other POENDI cameras would work well with them? No one's uh, weighed in. Oh, Alex is going to help us out a little bit here, Alex. I think bird dogs. Bird dogs are probably, you know, something that would probably give you, extend a little bit more of what you can do from an NDI perspective um, in that environment. There you go. Next question. Joe Kidd in the Bay Area, California. How does a camera with cooling fan effectively operate within the sealed environment of an underwater housing? Alex? 
I have to admit that we've never thought about it. I've done underwater stuff and we've always put the cameras in there and they've always worked and we've never had a problem with them. We don't shoot super long. Um, I think part of it is, is that the water dissipates a lot of heat, you know, just against the edge. So you've got a lot of something that's, that's touching everything that's on the outside and it's going to make it colder typically unless you're in a really warm environment and so so i think that it mostly the water dissipates a lot of that against the body of the uh, not of the camera but the body of the camera uh container you know in underwater that. is by definition water cooled uh exactly. next question douglas carmichael asking linus tech tips talked about uh moving from black magic design to sony cameras would the loss of integrated control be offset by the increased picture quality jesse I haven't heard Linus Tech, tech, tech Tips speak on this specifically, um, and I wonder if the the loss of one type of integrated control was traded more for another type of integrated control, which is more uh, control over the autofocus and the automatic features, which Sony shines at and uh, Blackmagic does not invest in nearly so much. Mitchell? I have to admit that I like the idea that I can use my ATAM to control a Blackmagic design camera. And if I had a, uh, a point of view camera up over my shoulder, I'd probably use it for that. But uh, for the most part, uh, what is the thing that you're most concerned with in a day-to-day -day webcam shoot, for example? It's autofocus. Uh, just look at Chris Fenwick. Alex. And I think that I, I, I haven't seen uh, Linus Tech Tips do a lot of live. So I don't know if maybe they do, maybe they don't. Um, but I think that, that that's where the, the, the black magic really steps steps across. Also, really refined color grading is you're going to have more to work with on a black magic camera than you will with the Sony. But that hasn't been, in my experience, a huge concern for most YouTubers. <laughs> so, so, you know, in depth, the color, color grading is not something that we usually expect on, a, on, on most of those channels. And let's not forget that Linus is a huge name in this with a gigantic following. So it's not unreasonable to think that there may have been a contract there involved that some signatures went down on. Yeah, I mean, it's he would have to he would have to tell us if Sony. I mean, technically with FTC, he would have to tell us uh, um, whether he um, whether he took money for it. But uh, the Sony A7s have been very popular among YouTubers um, and partially because they were seated with a bunch of them were seated with those. And additionally, um, they, and not, you know, if they're lent, I don't think they have to talk about it. It's only if they're given. Um, but also uh, that the autofocus is a huge deal. Like to get back to what Mitchell talked about for YouTubers who are running and gunning and doing fast shooting and doing everything else and want the short depth of field. I talked to one pretty prominent YouTuber and I said, what would it take you to go over to black magic? Like they were using Ace and the Sony's and they're like, Autofocus, <laughs> like, like autofocus is, is the thing. Like it was just flat out. That's what's getting people to buy the Sony's. Mitchell, uh, for the record, I do not receive any compensation or equipment from the Sony Corporation, but I'm willing to discuss it. <laughs> Jesse, <laughs> is there a time limit on how long those lendings can be according to FCT, FTC rules, or can you just lend a camera for five know. years? I don't know. I don't know what the I don't know what the rules are there. So I, because yeah, I, I don't know. In media, we did have rules, and I, you know, the years I spent writing for a magazine, I would get equipment, but it, there had to be a limit on it, and it had to be shipped back, and uh, you had to disclose that the equipment was provided by the manufacturer at no cost for the review. So, uh, in the old media, at least, there was there was pretty strict rules about that to keep the advertising side of a publication and the editorial yeah. side completely for, separate for youtube i don't think it's mostly if you're sitting there what, what they what they really pay attention to is if you're sitting there talking about the camera and recommending the camera 
is where the FTC pays attention. If you're just happen to be using it, there's not a lot of just, I don't think that that's what they're paying attention to. That would make sense. Next question. Jesse, uh, Justin James from Phoenix, Arizona. What would you recommend for a budget PTZ camera? Alex? One that we're, a lot of us are really interested in at the $5,000 range is the, um, is the Canon. The can I can't remember. The, I think it's the, uh, I think it's the 5,000 actually, um, but the can or 500, the Canon, Canon has a small, uh, $5,000 range PTZ that none of us have used, but all of us want to use, uh, bird dogs are a little less expensive than that. And those are probably, those are, they can give you both SDI, HDMI, and NDI. And then the smallest ones, um, the most affordable smallest ones, if you don't need HDMI output is, are these little guys here. These are 300 bucks. And this is the, uh, um, the, the Insta360 link, which I now own four of. <laughs> so, so, cause I'm doing, I want to test a, test it in a zoom room. Um, but, um, so those are the kind of the range. And then of course, once you get to $10,000, you're talking about the Sony BRC 1000s, the, 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 um, the, the Panasonic 150 160s and the Sony FR7s. Next question. Adam Baker in Bristol, UK. Has anyone had any experience with the Panas Panasonic BGH-1? The ability to control a group of them over the network could be useful for streaming. Alex? We have used the, um, the, the BGH-1 in some tests, and we haven't used a group of them. It's a beautiful image. Uh, I, I don't think the low light was quite as, as, as good as the cannons we were testing it against because we were lo really looking at low light. But I will say it's a it's a great box um, uh, if in, in the right experience. This is another one of those kind of just a, almost just a camera sensor um, that's there. Next question. From Tommy Shantz in St. Paul, Minnesota, asking, do you folks use fixed prime lenses or stick to the zooms? Uh, let's go to Courtney first. I prefer zooms, and maybe that's because I'm, you know, have built and use teleprompting equipment for so many years because it makes uh, changing your frame size so much easier if you have a big you know 20 pound teleprompter mounted on the camera and you're sitting on sticks instead of a dolly to change your frame size just two or three degrees with a fixed focal length lens you got to pick the whole thing up and move it or you got to take the you know take the teleprompter out from in front of the lens change the lens put the teleprompter back in front of the lens it can save you hours of production time and i run into dps that insist on using primes every day in a situation where they're using a teleprompter and i always try and talk them down with uh tj asher i think it depends on the intent in the industry if you're doing film and cinema i think they tend to use a lot more prime lenses fixed focal length lenses if you're doing ENG or that type of thing, you're using a zoom lens because you get a lot more versatility out of it. Um, myself in particular, I tend to use more zoom lenses than primes. And Jesse? We use a mix. I'm on a prime right now. We use a lot of zooms when we're out in the field. And we also stick to primes when we're on a, a gimbal just because they're lighter than the zooms. Mitchell? Um, zoom at first in order to determine uh, the best uh, distance. It seems that 40 millimeters is the uh, magic distance uh, for this camera. I'm using an FX3. Uh, my DP, Tom Schustak, came in and said, you like how that looks? Does that look pretty good? And I said, yeah, it does. It looks pretty good. He pulled out a, a uh, case uh, full of cooks and put a uh, Cook 40 on there. And it's, I can't begin to describe the difference with a really well done prime lens will do. I mean, but never on a webcam. <laughs> Next question. 
Next question from Brett Ballou, uh, for uh, from Appleton, Wisconsin. For Sigma lens owners on the panel, any weather sealing issues with dust or moisture affecting your Sigma lenses? I'm considering the Sigma 24-70mm 2.8 for my Sony a7 IV instead of mortgaging the farm to afford the G Master version. Uh, TJ Asher is going to start us off. TJ? I took a pair of Sigma lenses to Alaska last spring because I wanted to pack extremely light and had no issues with any of the weather or getting splashed on by water. Nice. Uh, Alex? I've owned a lot of Sigmas and been pretty happy with them. So I don't think you're going to have any issues specifically to what you're doing. I find them to be a little softer than my Canon L series lenses that are the same. Um, but, but otherwise, I think they're great lenses. Uh, let's see. Who else is in? Jesse Kessler. Kester. Uh, pretty much everything that our Blackmagic Pocket 6K has gone through, the uh, Sigma 18 to 35 has gone through along with it, and the lens is in better shape than the camera at this point. <laughs> Courtney? Uh, not, no, uh, this doesn't refer to the Sigma lenses at all, but just in general, when you're storing lenses and you're transporting them, uh, desiccant, uh, you want to use some of those dry packs and put them in with the lenses to keep, to absorb the moisture. Because, uh, if moisture gets into a lens and it stays sealed up in your closet for six months, a month, it can grow a fungus, uh, can attack the surface of the coated surfaces on those lenses inside. And once that attacks the inside coating of the lens, the lens is done. Mitchell Hill. Um, no specific uh, moisture issues other than uh, going from a, a, a hot to a cold environment. Um, using Sigmas versus the Sigmas versus the Sonys. Um, I think that they're pretty much on a par. I wouldn't have a problem going to a Sigma. Um, I do like the fact that they're usually about a third less the price. Yeah, that, that note about hot to cold and humid to non-humid is pretty important. We used to have a lot of uh, issues with the big camcorders in terms of the fact that dew warnings would show up, which is a hint that the moisture is getting inside. And I've known friends who had expensive lenses and ran into exactly what Courtney was talking about. They grew mold inside and there was really nothing you can do about it. You just have to dump the lens and buy a new one. Not fun. Next question. And the next one, possibly the last one, Douglas Carmichael asks, when would you use an AJA Kia Pro recorder versus an onboard recorder? Uh, Alex? Uh, I don't use key pros. <laughs> so, so, like, I, I owned a lot of them at all different sizes. Um, they, the mechanism of how they record and the fact that you can pull media out and basically lose access to all the stuff that's in the drive and the fact that they have specialized drives um, has been really problematic on our end. Um, I love a lot of stuff that AJA does. Um, the key pros are not one of them. And as, again, as an owner of maybe 12 of them at some point. <laughs> so, so the... Uh, uh, so I would not use that, but I would typically, I, if something's important, I try to record on it both in the camera and then also in an external recorder of some kind. Um, uh, so a lot of times the problem you have is that when you go inboard, when you're, when you're recording to the camera, you oftentimes have options to record at a higher resolution than what you can record in a, um, you know, so if I'm going to use a, like for instance, a camera that like a black magic, I want to record to an external drive, um, you know, and, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to do. Recording to the external something or other is, is usually pretty useful because it's the media tends to be cheaper. Um, but when you go out to the, out of the SDI or HDMI, you're going to end up with dumbing it down to 1080 or 4k when the camera itself is capable of something higher. Chris Fenwick. Uh, to the question, when would you use the key pro? I'd say 10 years ago. Yeah. Courtney Gooden. 
Yeah, exactly. They used to be used uh, in situations like for sitcoms where you're doing a multi-camera shoot. And rather than they would record in the camera, a raw, raw images in the camera, but they record uh, uh, Laura's uh, uh, images in a rack of recorders that there's a separate recordist recording all the cameras so they can turn those over to uh, those proxies over to editorials so that they can get to editing right away. That's one reason they use those external recorders and a whole bank of them with one person operating four or five at a time. The way I took advantage of that is that the Atomos uh, Shogun and uh, Inferno and some of the other monitors actually have built-in hard drive slots and can record to there. And I've had really good utility out of using those as an on-set monitor and then being able to pull that hard drive directly out of that and send it to editorial instantly. So there are systems that do kind of like video double system like that, that can be very useful and they're used a lot. All right, great job once again for everybody. Congratulations, thank you so much. Everybody you're seeing on the panel here for contributing their expertise. This is impossible to do without the, the group experience of the panel that joins every day. So it is a huge thank you to everybody on the panel. Also, those of you who are watching the show, our producers. Thank you for all the great questions. Again, fabulous job there. And our back-end crew uh, has to be acknowledged every day because they're back there doing a lot of work. Uh, coming up future, don't forget, uh, tomorrow, accessibility, the Waves plugin, Laura Thompson's going to talk about that. So if you're interested in any issues around uh, accessibility, be here tomorrow for sure. Saturday, four ways to draw on screen. So slide decks, whiteboards, things like that are the topic. I think that takes us to the end of the show. So I'm going to wrap things up and say thank you for being here and watching. And we'll be back tomorrow with the same thing. Atmos. Atmos. I thought that was Animos. Which one's which? Atmos. 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 Two syllables, not three. Okay. Thank Atmos. you. I will never get any free Atmos gear. We don't hear Alex. It's a feature. You're not a bug yet, Zachary. <laughs> we beat it 106,463 traversal miles today. Excellent. But we're 1K. We're going to get on that special. We're now in group two or group one.